Okay, guys, we are in Lesson 3, and we're looking at, if you remember, the book, if you want to go by what the book says, the key verse in this, to understand the book of Revelation, is chapter 1, verse 19. If you want to look with me real quickly, we're going to actually look at this verse today. But it says, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place. And so in this first part of our study, which we started last week, we'll finish it up today, we're looking at the things which he has seen. And they, may, they are with reference to uh, the vision that John has of Jesus. And so we're actually going to see his vision today. Now let me remind you, we saw this last week. Uh, well, actually, we're going to see it today, so I'll hold off on my thought and share it with you here in a moment. So look with me at verses 9 through 18. I, John, both your brother and companion in tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and... What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. To Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the seven golden lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet, and girded about his chest with a gold band. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance as like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who, who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. Okay, so let's look at what these verses are saying. First of all, the Patmos vision. First of all, John identifies himself again. John identifies himself as sharing in their trials. Tribulation is a word that means extreme circumstances. Going through some extreme difficulty. And so John is saying here, if you notice what he says in verse 9, I am your brother and companion in tribulation. So he's saying to you and I, guys, I share in your grief and in your pain and in the stuff that you're going through. All right? So basically, as all of us here share in it, we live in a world that is hard. Bad stuff happens. Stuff happens. People are going to get sick. People are going to die. People, you're going to lose your jobs. People, it, it's, a, it's a rough world. We need to grasp the reality of that. Now, why am I making such a big point out of that? Let me just stop for a moment. There is a doctrine 
in the Christian church in North America today that while some groups openly embrace it, it I hate to say it, it's, it's thinking has somewhat crept into our, our, our type of church as well. And it's a health and wealth prosperity message. Now, for those who hold to that, it's basically God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. And if you have enough faith, you're going to be healthy and you're going to be wealthy. Basically, to be honest with you, it's, it's a doctrine that says God wants you to be wealthy because if you're wealthy, you'll be healthy. Do you understand what I'm saying? What do you mean by that? Well, you'll do what it takes for you to be healthy if you have the money for it. Now, you say, well, we don't embrace that. No, but we do embrace a subtle form of it. What do you mean by that, George? Here's what I mean by that. We have a concept that is in our churches that thinks, listen to me, that if I am okay with God, then everything else should be okay in my life. Now, there is a line of thinking that is in our churches that if I'm okay with God, then everything should be okay with me. I'm just going to be honest with you. And that God wants me to be happy. How many of you have heard that one? You've maybe have embraced that kind of thinking. God's just interested in my happiness. Well, yes and no. He's interested in you being happy in Jesus and finding your joy in Christ in the midst of the stuff that you're going through. But he's not interested in your happiness as we define happiness. Do you understand what I'm saying? We define happiness by the stuff we own, the people we hang out with, and the positions we hold in life. That's how we define happiness by. And that's not the kind of that's not where Jesus is at. So here's what happens. And how do I know that we embrace that kind of thinking? When something bad happens, you can tell if you've embraced that kind of thinking if this is your response. God, why is this happening to me? I did this for you. Isn't that right? Isn't that how we think? God, why are you letting this happen to me? I've served you. I've gone to church. I love you. Why? See, what has happened there? We've embraced that kind of lie, haven't we? Here's another way that you've embraced that kind of lie. If you see tragedy in someone else's life, and you make a comment like this, well, I wonder what kind of sin is in their life. See, immediately we assume that if you're okay with God, then everything else should be okay in your life. But the reality is, is folks, can bad stuff happen and there be no sin in your life? Yes. Yeah, stuff is out of our control. So here's John, right off the bat, he's going to identify himself as sharing in their trials, the, re the trials that these readers are going through. He's going, to, he's going to identify with you and I. Look, guys, I know the stuff that we go through. I know the stuff that life throws at us. Now, he also identifies himself one other way. He identified himself as sharing in their hope. Sharing... In their hope. Now look at what it says there. I am both your brother and companion in tribulation and the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. So what is that? If you go and take that word in, he's not just sharing with them in their tribulation. He's also sharing with them in the kingdom and their patience. What patience? 
The patient's waiting for who to come back? Jesus. See, he, what he's communicating here is, is that, you know, I like you, if I'm John, I like you am sharing in the stuff that you're going through, but I'm also sharing in the hope that you have. You understand what I'm saying? The hope that you have is down the road when Jesus comes back. You understand what I'm saying? That's your hope. It's not what this world has to offer. You know, think about it for a moment. Let's go back to that prosperity message. Where's the hope in the prosperity message, folks? Right now. What I can get now. The reality is, later on, is where our hope needs to be in Jesus. Because, you know, we just had an economic downturn, did we? Did we not? We've actually had two in the last ten years. And so those of you who have 401k plans or, or IRAs know what I'm talking about because, like, even just 10 years ago, everything crashed and stuff dropped 30 to 50% in investments. Same thing happened again, if not more. Some of you took a real big hit in this latest one. So here you are, you're, you're laying aside your nest egg, you know, the company's putting their portion in, you're putting your portion in, and you're counting the days to retirement, you're watching it grow. And then what happens? Boom. Now, how many of you had control over the economy crashing? Anybody here have that kind of control? Please let us know. Because we want you to reverse it. None of us did. And then you've watched your 401Ks, your IRAs do what? Tank. And, and it's like, well, they told me well, yeah, they told you in a perfect world. But the world isn't perfect. See, our hope can't be in this world. Our hope has to be where, folks? In Christ. So here's what he's saying. I, he identifies himself as sharing in their hope. Is that your hope? Is that your hope, folks? Is it here? Do you understand? It has to be later on. Now, he's going to give them their location. He tells them that he's on... Patmos, because of the gospel. Let me describe Patmos to you. Patmos is a little island in the Aegean Sea off the coast of what is now modern-day Turkey. I think it belongs to Greece today. It's a, a barren island, no trees on it. It's kind of rocky, grassy, and there's no trees on the island at all. Um, they believe today that they know the cave that John stayed in, stayed in when he was on there. So he was exiled there. The date of his exile, church tradition and history tells us, is about A.D. 95. Okay, so you're talking about a book here that was written in A.D. 95. So it's while on, he's, he's on this island. So obviously conditions are not great there. So when he says he's sharing in trials, your little thing that you're going through is nothing compared to what he's going through. Okay? Now, why am I making a big deal about when this is? Well, because there's a group, and they're even in our area here, that believes that everything took place before what? A.D. 70. Everything took place with the fall of Jerusalem. The problem is, is this book was written when? 25 years later. I think that's a significant point you've got to keep in your mind. This book was written in A.D. 95, because John was sent to the island while, I think, his Diocletian was the emperor at that time, and he was 
there was a severe persecution going on in the church. So he was sent there during that time. It couldn't have happened in AD 70. It couldn't have happened before that. So, yeah. I, no, but I'm sure they do. I think they, they actually claim the book was written before AD 70. I think that's kind of hard. To, you know, you're grasping at straws. Maybe one church father said that, but most of the church fathers say it was AD 95. All right? So, so here he is. He's on Patmos. Now, why, do I, why am I making a big point here? Because we've got some folks in this area, right here in this Pennsylvania area here, who hold to this, and you may meet them, and they'll tell you, oh, it already took place. No, it didn't. This was written in 95. If it already took place, Jesus would come back. What's he writing about? You know, you know what I mean? What's John writing about? Because he's writing about what? The second coming of Jesus. So I think this is a very important verse here that tells us when this book was written because it says when he's on the Isle of Patmos. And we know from tradition in church history that was A.D. 95. Now, let's go on now. He's on there because of what? Look at what it says up there. He's on the Isle of, He tells them that he's on Patmos because of what? His good looks? No, the gospel. You understand? So he's there suffering in particular because of his witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, here's his state. John saw the vision on the Lord's day while in the Spirit. Now, let me explain what that is to you. In this spirit describes a special experience in the Holy Spirit. John was probably in a state of ecstasy, the outer world being shut out, and the inner and higher life, or the spirit-filled control life, was there. And he was able to enter the invisible spiritual realm. Now, a lot of the apostles experienced this. Remember, If you remember, I think it's... Um, 2 Corinthians 12, uh, verse 1, Paul talks about another man being taken up to the third heaven. And he saw things that were so wonderful, but it was not lawful for him to write down. So the Apostle Paul is obviously talking about himself. Scholars believe he's talking about himself because he then talks about because of the visions he saw, he was given a thorn in the flesh, verse 7 says, to keep him humble. So this was, this was a state that these apostles fell into where they were transported somewhere to see the things of God. So when he talks about being in the Spirit, that's what he's talking about here. All right, now let's look at the vision he had. It's a vision of Christ. And so first of all, he heard a voice like a trumpet. He heard a voice like a trumpet. Now, can anybody tell me, what does a trumpet sound like? I mean, is it soothing music? Do you like when you want to, if you've had a rough day, you've got a throbbing headache, do you go on and turn on Herb Alpert? Some of you don't even know who Herb Alpert is anymore. Okay? But, you know, or uh, Chuck Mangione, do you remember him with his big, you know, or Dizzy Gillespie with the big cheeks? I don't even know who the modern day trumpeters are, but I mean, there aren't any. It's a good era gone by. What's that? Doc Severson was the last. Well, anyhow, so here's, here's what I'm trying... Here, is that soothing? Is that a soothing sound to you? What, what is usually a trumpet used for? It's made for what? Announcing, proclaiming. 
So he hears a voice, so obviously it's very loud, like a trumpet. Now, here's what the voice did. The voice proclaimed the identity of Christ. So I was in the Spirit and I heard a voice. Verse 10 says, I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. And so then saying, and so he's identifying himself here, I'm the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. So he's identifying himself as Christ. Now here's what else it says. Now again, let's stop for a moment. What is the voice identifying? First of all, I'm the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. What's he talking about? I'm eternal God. I've always existed. Remember, Alpha and Omega is like saying A and Z. I'm totality. And the first and the last. He's always existed, will always exist. He's talking about his eternal state. This is Jesus now proclaiming this. So here's what he does. The voice commanded John to write what he sees. To write what he sees. Now, there's an important point here that we've got to make. Because he's telling him to write to who? Is he telling him to write to prophecy gurus in 2010 North America? Is that what that verse says? Seven churches, and is it any seven churches? Yeah, he named them, and they're Thyatira, they're Smyrna, they're Pergamos, they're Sardis, Ephesus, Laodicea, Philadelphia. Do you understand? So these are seven churches. Now he's writing in AD 95, so he's writing these seven churches. They're in Asia Minor. I think it even says that. Which are where? In Asia. So we're not talking about Smyrna, Georgia. So he's writing to seven churches. So I, this is why am I making this point here again? Because the book, as it's going to be written, is going to be able to be understood by who? The people of that time. Do you understand? It's for average people to understand. It's not written in 95 for people in 2010 to finally grasp what it says. Do you understand what I'm saying? So it's written so that they understand it. So that's an important point that we've got to make. Now, look at me at verse 12. So he hears this voice, like a trumpet, making this proclamation, the proclamation that he's Christ, proclamation for him to write these things down. In verse 12, John writes, And then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. So here's what he's seeing. John saw one who spoke among seven golden lampstands. Now, we're going to identify those lampstands in verse 20, but we haven't gotten there yet. So what he does is he turns around and he sees a vision of seven golden lampstands and one among the seven golden lampstands. Now, he's going to talk about the one who's in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. So look with me, verse 13, 14 and 15 and 16. I want you to read those verses to yourself right now. Okay, here's what I want you to see. John sees the exalted Christ. John sees the exalted Christ. 
Now, let's stop for a moment. I want you to think about this for a moment with me. When, you've, when you read these verses, you're, you're seeing a description of Jesus there. What impression do you get from the description of Jesus Christ, and how does it fit with the view that most Christians have today about Jesus? So first of all, what's the impression you get about Jesus when you read this? And then what is, how does that fit with what most people think about Jesus, most Christians think about Jesus today? Okay, Bruce says his opinion is, is that it's power and wisdom. Anything else you want to add to that, Bruce? Okay, we view, okay, it's different than t- today because we view him as the way he was when he went to the cross. Okay, that's good. Anybody else? What, 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 what stands out to you about this vision? Yeah, Sue. So, okay, so you're, th- you're saying here it looks like he's describing, it's like describing a mighty warrior, and when you think of Jesus, you think about him holding a lamb. Or maybe you've seen the picture of Jesus walking with a sheep with a lamb on his shoulders, you know, which there's no record of him ever doing that. But some of you have that in your house. Here's what I want you to think about. Okay, guys, we've got to be very careful, all right, because Jesus calls us his friend. All right, because we're going to see something here in a, in, in a moment that I think needs to speak to us here today. But we've got to get the vision of the Renaissance Jesus, I shall say, you know, the, the vision of Jesus from the Renaissance. Do you understand most of the pictures we have of Jesus is of a white guy, not a Mediterranean Jew. I mean, he probably had a big nose. Just being honest with you, most Mediterranean Jews at that time had a big nose. He probably he was olive-skinned. If you look at most of the pictures we have today, they look like Italians. And there's a reason why. Well, that may be one reason, okay. But most of the Renaissance artists were from Italy, and they had people posed for them for their for their paintings. Do you understand? So, now, here's what I want you to understand. We, we've lost a majestic view of God here. You say, well, are you sure that's the way he is? Remember, he took, he took the disciples with him on the Mount of Transfiguration and he showed them as he really was. What happened to him there? He became white. His hair became white. Glory was shown. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is who Jesus really is. Do you understand what I'm saying? He's not this meek guy. All right, so we've got to get that impression out out of our mind. And here's why I want you to understand that. Before I show you the next point here, the next verse, do you remember from the Gospel of John how John was described described himself in the Gospel with reference to Jesus? How, How did he describe himself in that Gospel? He never uses his name John in the Gospel of John. He always says, the disciple whom... Jesus loved. And whenever you see pictures of him, so for instance in the Last Supper, of course Judas is on one hand, John is laying in his what? His bosom. I mean, he's right there with Jesus. So there's, there's obviously a relationship there. Close relationship. And he was so struck by the fact that Jesus loved him. Okay, so I want you to understand, that's, that's the picture John gives you in the Gospel of his relationship with Jesus. I want you to notice with me verse 17. Here's what he writes. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. 
John responded by falling on the ground as dead. Isn't that what it reads there? Or, or does it say this? He went up and said, High five, Jesus! Woo! Good to see you! Is that what he did? No, do you understand? Here's somebody who has an intimate, the Bible very clearly says he's got an intimate relationship with Jesus. Who, who if, if anyone could say, I'm a friend of God, he could. And he turns around and he sees Jesus in his glorified state. Now, this is not the first time he's seen Jesus in the glorified state, because when you go to the Gospels and you go to the Mount of Transfiguration, John is one of the ones who's with Jesus when the transfiguration happens. So this is the second time he's seen Jesus in his glory. Do you understand? And his response when he sees the holy God is the response that we see of all the prophets in the Old Testament. He falls on his face like he's dead. Because holiness is standing before him. Do you understand what I'm saying? He's got a grasp of who Jesus is. And, and so let me make this point to you so we can grab it. Jesus is your friend, but he ain't your buddy. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Jesus is your friend, but he's still God. He's still holy. And he ain't your buddy. We've gotten into a buddy theology over the last few years. Oh, he, Jesus is my buddy, and we've forgotten who he is in his majesty. John, when he sees him in his majesty, boom, hits the ground. Because holiness is standing in front of him. Do you understand what I'm saying? Even though he had that relationship with Jesus, he understands. Power and glory is there. That's an awesome thought. Say, so, you know, are you sure? Folks, this is the apostle doing this. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is the apostle. Now, but I want you to notice something. Here's the response of Jesus. Isn't this like Jesus? Christ tells John not to be afraid. But he laid his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that Jesus? Even in his glory and his, and his holiness, and it's a rightful response on the part of John. Look, folks, we're going to tremble when we see before him, see him. Just being honest with you. We're going to tremble. But here's what he does. He comes over and lays his hand on him and says, don't be afraid. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that Jesus? Now, here's what goes on now. Look with me. He identifies himself, verses 17 through 18. Here's what he describes himself. First of all, he describes himself again as the first and the last, which I already told you. He describes himself as eternal. He's eternal. He's always existed. He always will exist. Period. He goes on, Christ describes himself as resurrected. Look, he, he goes vividly and he says what? He says he lived, was dead, and what? And now is alive again. So he's talking about his resurrection. But he describes himself in one other way, and I think this is the most powerful for you and I. Look with me at the last part there. I have the keys of what? Hades, and death. Here's what I want you to see. Christ describes himself as having authority over death and hell. Hades here, there are several New Testament terms. Um, 
the Old Testament refers to it as Sheol, or, or the grave is another translation, but or, or Hades. Hades, we often refer to it as hell. And, of course, then there's the lake of fire. But here's what he's saying. He has control. When he says he has the keys. No, if I, if I, you know, I'm going to go away. If I'm leaving town, taking a family, we're going to go on vacation, and I say to Sam, Sam, here's the keys to my house. Can you make sure everything's okay? And Sam says, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll watch over things. Who's got control of my house now? Sam, why? He's got the keys. And he can raid my fridge, steal my burger patties, throw them on the grill. Do you, you know what I'm saying? I mean, he can, he, he can, you know, he's got control. Why? He's got the keys. Do, do you understand what I'm saying? Who's got control of your car? The guy who's got, or gal who's got the what? The keys. And you know what I'm talking about when we talk about control, because when your teenager asked to use the vehicle, you were reluctant to what? Give up the keys. Because keys mean control. That's what's going on here. What I want you to see is, is John's trying to tell you Jesus identifies himself as what? Eternal, resurrected, and in control of the end. What do we fear, folks? Death. Don't we? It's a natural human instinct for us to fear death. Period. To us, that is doom. We try to do everything we can to cover it up. But Jesus says, I'm the one who owes the keys to death. Isn't that interesting? That's a great thing, the wonderful thing for you and I, isn't it? You know, Wonderful thing for you and I to, to grasp. Now, look with me at verse 19 through 20. We're going to finish up with these two verses. Here's what he says. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place, the mystery of the seven stars which you have seen in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven golden lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. All right, so let's talk about here. First of all, Christ tells John to write the Revelation. Now again, this is a key verse in the Bible. If you want to, mark it down, put a star by verse 19 in your Bible, because this is a key verse to understanding the book of Revelation. We already talked about this earlier. The first part, the things which you have seen, is, is chapter 1. The things which are, are chapter 2 and 3. And then the things which will take place are chapters 4 through the end of the book. Okay? Now, he's going to talk about the seven golden lampstands and the... Seven stars. First of all, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. He very and first of all, this is not some guru telling you this. This is Jesus himself telling you that the seven golden lampstands are what? The seven churches. Alright? Now this is going to be very key when we get next week into the first church, the church at Ephesus, because Jesus identifies them himself in some way, concerning the seven lampstands. Now, before I give you the next point, I want you to help you to understand something. Look with me. He talks about the seven stars there. Verse 20, how many of you have a New King James? 
All right, somebody from the New King James, read to me what it says the seven lampstands are. Excuse me, the seven stars are. They are the what? Angels of the seven churches. Now, does somebody else have a translation different from the New King James? Anybody got an NIV here? Who's got an NIV? Okay, what does it say? Okay, the angels. Okay, anybody else got something completely different? Now, the translators, can I be honest with you, the Greek word there is messenger, angelos. The translators just simply translated it angel. The actual meaning is what it should be. The Greek word is angelos, meaning messenger. To the messengers of those churches. So, the, the common held interpretation of that, which is what I hold to, is that the seven stars are the seven pastors of the seven churches. Now, let me explain to you why I hold to that. You might be here and you say, well, it's the angels. Well, you've got to be careful about that because you know, cause there's a lot of crazy stuff out there about angelology out there that's more out of the Bible than it is in the Bible. And, you know, like everybody's got their own special guardian angel and every church has got their own special guardian angel. Here's the problem with saying it's an angel. Jesus doesn't need to send an angel a letter. Do you understand what I'm saying? If Jesus wants to talk to angels, what can he do? He talks to angels. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is why I think we need to go back to what the meaning of it is in the Greek. The meaning of it is the messenger. Now, who is the messenger in the church? The pastor. Because the things he's going to say to those pastors are things that they're going through and things that they need to do with reference to the church. So, what we see there is that the seven stars are the seven pastors of those seven churches. So, it's not angels. Let me just stop for a moment. Some of you are into the angel thing. Is there really? Yeah, I'd be surprised. I've talked to some folks. Some of you are into angels. Get into Jesus, not angels. Just being honest with you. Because Jesus is more powerful than the angels. The angels serve him. Now, the Bible does say there are ministering spirits. So, yeah. There are angels that minister around us and they do things that we have no clue about. One day we'll know. But we've got to be so careful because a lot of it comes out of Hollywood. Do you know what I'm saying? TV series, touched by an angel, you know, whatever. And that has nothing to do, it's not in the, it's not in the Bible. Folks, what's the source of our truth? TV? The Bible's got to be what the Bible says. So you've got to be careful about the stuff you hear out there. All right. So let's close our time. 